Well, I invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4 this morning. And we'll be uh, looking primarily at verses 8 through 11. But I'll start reading in verse 7 just to dip briefly into the passage we looked at last week, which kind of begins with this context. So 1 Peter chapter 4. It's my privilege to read from the inspired Word of God, so please listen in faith and reverence to God speaking to us this morning through Holy Scripture. 1 Peter chapter 4, starting in verse 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Well, Peter has been uh, giving wisdom from God to these believers that are scattered throughout modern day Turkey that are going through various trials and persecutions and tribulations. So he's trying to strengthen their faith so that they might persevere in these times of suffering, but not only to persevere, but also to be fruitful that even in times of trials, even in times of persecution, the Lord would not have us just to endure it, but to continue to be fruitful in living for the Lord Jesus Christ. And one of the most powerful truths that He wants to implant in their minds is the reality of the end of all things is near. Verse 7. In other words, He wants them to be sure and focus on the future. There's all kinds of things in the present that were not enjoyable, that were not pleasing, that were not good from their perspective, just as there is today in ours. There's all kinds of things going on in our world today, whether it's moral debauchery or political chaos or whatever it may be. And things are not good, just as they weren't good in his day. But what Peter is saying, and the rest of Scripture would chime in on this, is that's why it's all the more important to not put our hope in this world, but to put our ultimate hope in the glory that's coming in the future. And so in verse 7, Peter reminds him that the end of all things is near. And last week we kind of tried to wrestle with what that means because Peter said this 2,000 years ago, and the end of all things has not yet taken place yet. But our perspective is that it's still coming. It's a certainty. 
It's going to be here. We need to be watching and waiting for the return of Jesus Christ. We don't know when that will be, but it will be one day for sure. And we need to have that expectation. We need to always have one eye looking towards the future and let that influence our attitude and our hearts today. The focus on the future, living in light of our glorious inheritance that Peter has already described in chapter 1, is like a spiritual stimulant to the soul. It's like spiritual caffeine to a sluggish spirit. And so oftentimes, because of the circumstances of the world in which we live, it can pull us down, it can discourage us and depress us, and it can make our spirits just sluggish like we're trying to walk through quicksand. We feel like we're sinking because things are so bad. And whenever we focus on the future though, it can stimulate our souls to hope and joy and a future perspective that's not impacted by what's going on today. It's like sailors lost at sea that are out of food and out of water languishing on deck weak and without strength and without hope. And then suddenly one looks up over the edge of the ship and he, and he sees land. And he cries out, land, I see land. And the very hope of seeing that land off in the distance has a reviving impact upon all who are on the ship. And this is the glory that whenever we see land, the future land, Canaan land, heaven's land, it should have a reviving impact upon our souls today. Give us hope and courage because ultimately this life is temporal. But the things to come are eternal. And that's where our joy should be planted there. And so Peter is telling them in verse 7, The end of all things is near. Therefore, these are the things you need to pursue. These are the things you need to focus on. And last week we saw in verse 7, the first thing was your relationship with God. Be devoted to prayer. Seek out your walk with God. Focus on God. Pray to God. Let that be part of how you respond to the future glory that awaits us because of all that God has done for us through Jesus Christ. So pray. The sound mind, sober spirit, he says in verse 7, for the purpose of prayer, be committed to that. This week in verses 8-11, through he now changes the focus that the future should have upon us now to how we should minister and be fruitful in our relationships with one another. So now that's going to be verses 8 through 11. To lose this future focus is to become lost in the fog of life. And Peter doesn't want us to to end up that way. Yes, we're weary pilgrims passing through this life. But we need to be reminded that the land of God, the future glory, the new earth, all lies ahead, the glory of heaven. And let that stimulate us in our responsibilities and duties to one another. He's going to mention basically three in this passage. The duty of loving one another, 
Number two, the duty of hospitality. And number three, of using our spiritual gifts to bless and benefit others. Those are the three things he's going to focus on. So let's look at verse 8. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. So even though we're living in a difficult day, but we've got the hope of glory ahead of us, so let that hope, that future blessing that lies in front of us encourage us to love one another today. Peter wants them to be fruitful even though they're being persecuted. And it's more than just surviving the persecution. He wants them to thrive in the midst of it by loving one another. Not forgetting that. Notice how he begins in verse 8. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. And that's because love is the premier virtue of the Christian life. It's the most frequently commanded in Scripture to love one another. So that love should be put at the top of our list that we need to stop and ask ourselves, am I loving the brethren? Am I a person that is showing love towards my brothers and sisters in Christ? Christ said that love for God and love for our neighbor are the two most important commandments And all the law and the prophets depend upon them. And Jesus even said that love is so important, it's the distinguishing mark of His disciples. Remember in John chapter 13, Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. In other words, above all things, love because that is the mark of being a disciple and a follower of Jesus Christ. That's how important it is. So above all, Peter says, be fervent in your love for one another because love is vital to living out our Christian faith on a daily basis. That idea of it being above all other virtues is echoed by Paul in Colossians 3.14. He had listed other virtues in the preceding context and then he said, above all these put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Again, Paul agrees that love is the premier virtue of the Christian life. And John will later say that it's Vital to showing evidence that you're saved. That you've been born again. In 1 John 3.14, John will say, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. So love is extremely important. It's something that we cannot avoid. It's something that is pressed upon us everywhere we go in Scripture. And of course, we're all familiar with Paul's great passage on love in 1 Corinthians 13. Notice again the emphasis that he puts on it, the priority for love. He says, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. In other words, if you have the supernatural gift of speaking in tongues, which is an incredible gift, supernatural, 
It's not given today in my understanding of the gift, but back then it was. If you have that gift, but you don't have love, you're just a, a noisy instrument that's just irritating to the ears. That's all you are. In verse 2, he says, if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and have all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I'm nothing. You can, you can, have, you can have all these spiritual gifts, but if you don't love the other people, then basically you're nothing. I mean, you can have those gifts and not even be saved. Maybe not the gift of faith. Remember Matthew 7, there are those who came to Him and said, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons in Your name and in Your name prophesy and in Your name do healings? And He says, I never knew You. Depart from Me, You workers of lawlessness. They had these gifts. They didn't even know the Lord in true faith. And they didn't have love. And Paul is quite clear. Love is more important than exercising gifts. And then he says in verse 3, And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor and I surrender my body to be burned, the ultimate act of devotion to God. You're going to give everything away to feed the poor. You're going to surrender your body to be burned. And maybe that was being a martyr or something like that. But you don't have love. It doesn't profit you anything. So even the greatest sacrifice without love no good. So when Peter is saying above all, he means above all. It's something we need to examine our hearts by because love is that important. It's the preeminent virtue in the Christian faith. So we need to examine our hearts and pray, oh God, love is a fruit of the Spirit. Give me more of the fruit of the Spirit. Because whether we're going through tough times or good times, whether we're going through persecution or trials, God wants us to be fruitful in the midst of it. Not just survive, but to thrive. And that's why He's exhorting them. And the hope of the glory to come is what stimulates that. But He wants us to focus on that love for one another. The reason why love is a priority is because the church is a community of sinners redeemed by grace. But we're still sinners. And we can still offend one another. And the church will be torn asunder if we do not extend grace and love to others even in spite of offenses. So love must be a priority because that's what holds the unity of the church together with all the differences that that may be going on. And then he adds to this, it's not only above all things love, but keep fervent in your love for one another. That the love should be a fervent love. And the word for fervency is an interesting word because it implies that which is energetic. It's active. It expends energy. It actually reaches out to share and do love to others. And Peter's already mentioned this already in chapter 1 when he says, since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. So he repeats it now the second time. 
And by repeating it a second time, obviously it needs to be stressed as something important. We need to fervently love one another. How do you fervently love one another? Well, it involves more than just speaking just a word. Uh, Words can certainly express love, but action is even better. Love is always seeking the good of other people. And when we love fervently, we're going to actively be seeking the good for other people. And sometimes that will involve a sacrifice on our part. That's why John said when he's talking about the nature of love in 1 John three seventeen and 18, he says, whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or tongue, but in deed and truth. So love is something done in action. It's not just a word. A word can be loving. A word can minister, definitely. But in this case, in John's context, it's actually sharing what you have with others in need. There's always, I think the reason why love is emphasized so much is because there's always a temptation for our love to grow cold. It's kind of like a fire that needs to be continually stirred up. And love is, again, the fruit of the Spirit, but the Spirit of God uses the wood of the Word to stir up that fire within us. And I think as we're reading Scripture, we're going to be confronted with that with the need to love more, to show love to others, love in action. And then he goes on to say, to add to this in verse 8, why our love needs to be fervent and a priority because in verse 8, love covers a multitude of sins. So love covers a multitude of sins. And that's why it's so important. This uh, probably is being uh, taken from Proverbs 10, verse 12, where Solomon writes, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. So what does it mean that love covers a multitude of sins? Well, it doesn't mean that our, our love in any way brings about atonement, doesn't cover their sin in the sense of it atones for their sins. Of course not. Only the blood of Christ can do that. It's not saying by covering over sin, we condone sin either. Obviously, that's why the church has church discipline is to deal with sin that's unrepentant. So he's not talking about atoning for sin or condoning sin. But I think what Peter has in mind is the idea that we don't broadcast all the sins that we see in other people. In other words, don't be like Ham when his father Noah came out of the ark and planted a vineyard and made wine and got drunk. And Ham walked into the tent and saw his father in a drunken stupor lying naked on the tent floor. And he came out and told his brothers, Shem and Japheth, probably with a a level of sarcasm or loathing or just laughing at his father, exposing his father's sin. 
and his two brothers and took a garment and walked in the tent backwards, you remember, and laid it over their father. That's someone who doesn't cover the sins of others, but exposes them. Now there are times when that needs to be done. But love has a tendency not to want to gossip because gossip tears down the reputation of other people. It slanders them. Love doesn't do that. It covers a multitude of sins. So I think one meaning of this is that it doesn't broadcast sins. In general, private sins should be dealt with privately. Public sins should be dealt with publicly. But there's a sense in which love is not so easily offended by offenses. So it's more willing to cover over the multitude of sins that may be committed against them. And of course, it also involves forgiving sins. And this is what love does. It's quick to forgive sins. So instead of uncovering the sin, we cover it, i.e. we forgive it. We overlook that word, that comment, that action that offended us. We overlook it. Love doesn't use the offenses of others against us to, like a springboard to strike back at them and retaliate. Love doesn't do it. It covers over the sins. It's similar to what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13 verse 5 about love when he says it does not seek its own, it's not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered. So it's quick to forgive. That's what love does. It's quick to forgive. Quick to overlook. Paul gave us a motivation for that in Ephesians 4 verse 32 when he said, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. In other words, Christ has forgiven me all of my sins and I should extend that grace to those around me who sin against me. It's showing the similar grace that we have received ultimately fully in Christ and we can extend that by forgiving others. Remember the sad failure of that in the parable that Jesus told about the slave who owed the king 10,000 talents? 10,000 talents is an is a astronomical amount of money. Some modern commentators have estimated that it was worth about 60 million days of labor. <laughs> 60 million days of labor. That's how much he owed the king. So obviously, there's no way he, he's going to ever pay that back. So he went to the king. He begged for mercy. The king forgave him. So he was forgiven all this incredible debt. And then he went out and found a servant, another slave that owed him money, a hundred denarii, which is about three months of salary. And this other friend, this other slave, couldn't pay him back. So instead of forgiving him, he had him thrown in prison until he paid it all back. The king heard about it. He came up to that first slave. And he said, because you have not forgiven the slave who owed you such a small amount, and I forgave you so much, your unforgiving heart will now 
I'm going to hand you over to the torturers until you pay all you owe. And what Jesus is pointing out in that is that those who have received incredible forgiveness from God certainly ought to extend forgiveness to other people. If we do not forgive, if we expose the sins of others all the time, if we're easily offended, if we always are remembering what they did to us, then it will grow bitterness and fester your heart. It will infect us with a sinful spirit. And we will pull that offense with us every day of our life to our grave. And I know of people like that, and you probably do too. They were offended, I mean decades ago, but they have never forgiven, they've never forgotten. And they carry that like a, like a burden, like a sled full of rocks every day of their life, living in the bitterness and the anger of what happened to them. And what the Lord is telling us, what Peter is telling us, is that love covers it, it forgives, it moves on. It's like a a whale that's been harpooned by the men in the boat. And that harpoon has been rammed into the side of that whale and there's a rope tied back, held on by by the hunters in the boat. And everywhere that whale goes, he's pulling that boat along with him. Pulling those men. Always chained and tied back to the offender's But if only he could reach back and pull the harpoon out and be free. That's what forgiveness does. It's able, because of so much that that Christ has forgiven me of, I can extend that grace to others. And that helps to prevent bitterness and sin infecting our soul. So this is why we need to love fervently is because We just run into these kinds of sparring conflicts. It's like some Christians are like the bumper car Christian. You know, you've ever ridden the little cars in a bumper car. And what do you try to do? What's the goal in a bumper car? Slam into somebody. And sometimes people are like that. And we just get beat up and we get dented. And we've got to learn to love by covering over their sins, forgiving them, moving on, Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. So because we know the glory that's coming, all rights will be righted then. Every sin will be dealt with by a just God then. I can forgive them and move on. So that's the first thing that Peter exhorts them to do. The second one is hospitality. Oh, and by the way, before I move on, I just noticed... I skipped something. When, when Peter said, cover a multitude of sins, and now that's challenging. And it's like when Peter came up to the Lord and asked him, how many times should I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Seven times? And we know the answer the Lord gave, no, 70 times seven. A multitude. So you forgive a multitude of sins. Well, hospitality is next... In verse 8. I'm sorry, verse 9. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. Now, hospitality, the word that's used here, philoxenos, 
literally means a love of strangers. And this was a very important ministry in the first century church because hospitality was crucial back in that day because of all the traveling believers and teachers and evangelists and and apostles sent out from one church to be traveling around, going through different churches, ministering the Word. And the public inns back then were few, and besides that, they were unsafe, and they were also very uncomfortable, and they were dangerous. Oftentimes, there would be a lot of drunkenness and impurity there, kind of like a red-light district. Uh, it's not a place for a believer would, would be comfortable at. It's not a safe place for traveling believers. So it was important to show hospitality. That when they came to your city and they came to minister, that they needed to be put up in someone's homes. And it was important for uh, believers to provide that bed and breakfast, that bed and board for those visiting. Sometimes these guys... Uh, when they're coming, would bring letters of introduction so that they can have someone vouching for them that they come from so-and-so church with a good reputation, whatever it is, coming to minister the gospel, teach the word, whatever it might be. Or sometimes it's believers who are fleeing from persecution. So they're going to another town, they're going to another church, and it was important for believers to show them hospitality. It was also important because churches met in homes back then. Uh, they didn't have synagogues like the, like the Jews did. Uh, church buildings didn't come for probably 200 years or so, so they met in homes. So it was important for believers to open up their homes for the church to gather and to worship in. Jesus even uh, told His disciples, remember in Matthew 10 when He sent them out, He said, whatever city or village you enter, inquire who is worthy in it and stay at his house until you leave that city. So that was a practice. And when Paul would send out some of his delegates to go minister in different places, the church needed to house them and put them up while they ministered. So again, this was a very important uh, ministry. John, in his third epistle, his third letter, Uh, actually condemned one of the leaders of the church by the name of Diotrephes, who loved to be first among them. And John rebuked him because he says he did not receive the brethren either, and he forbids those who desire to to do so and puts them out of the church. So he was not showing hospitality to traveling, visiting teachers or prophets or whoever it might be. And John rebuked him. But it's interesting that uh, Peter says, be hospitable to one another without complaint. And this without complaint, I think, certainly implies that, you know, showing hospitality sometimes can be weary, particularly if someone comes and stays for days and days and days. And it's interesting that the Didache, which was a very early church manual, probably written at the end of the first century, or the early 2nd century, actually addressed the problem that sometimes arose with showing hospitality. And I'll just read you a portion of this. But concerning the apostles and prophets, do according to the ordinance of the gospel. 
Let every apostle when he comes to you be received as the Lord, but he shall not abide more than a single day. This would be a traveling apostle coming in to minister and then moving on. Not for more than a day. Or if there be need, a second likewise. But if he abides three days, he's a false prophet. And when he departs, let the apostle receive nothing except bread until he finds shelter. But if he asks for money, he's a false prophet. So apparently this hospitality was being abused in the first century. And these guys, whoever wrote the Didache, came out of probably some local church or a few churches, actually had to put some guidelines down for how long a traveling evangelist or teacher could stay without being labeled a false prophet. So anyway, uh, without grumbling was important because oftentimes, you know, when you're showing hospitality, it can be laborious, it can be difficult at times. And so it's something that Peter encourages them to do it with a, a loving heart and do it without grumbling. Today, hospitality is practiced just when we open up our homes and invite others to come in, share a meal or have fellowship. And it's a wonderful ministry. Uh, small churches or small groups within our church uh, need that uh, practice of hospitality and we're so thankful for those who do. So it's a wonderful ministry that can still be practiced today, albeit in a different context than what Peter is talking about, probably which was going on in the uh, first century. And then from this in verse uh, 10 and 11, Peter then moves on to the use of our spiritual gifts. He wants them to be fruitful. Wants them to not just survive, but to thrive. And part of that is for each believer to use their spiritual gifts for the building up and edification of the body. So he says in verse 10, as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So notice several things he points out here. First off, every believer has a gift. A spiritual gift. In verse 10, he says, as each one has received a special gift. So if you're a believer here this morning, you have a spiritual gift. You have, you might have more than one. Uh, Paul teaches this in 1 Corinthians 12 that this Holy Spirit sovereignly distributes spiritual gifts to each one individually just as he wills. So you have a spiritual gift that's been given to you by the Holy Spirit, sovereignly chosen for you, one or more gifts, by which you will be a blessing to the church, by which you can serve and minister for the common good. So point number two that he makes here is that the purpose of gifts is to serve one another. Employ it, he says in verse 10, in serving one another. And again, 1 Corinthians 12, as he deals with spiritual gifts, Paul there says to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So you have to think about this. You've been given a spiritual gift and that gift is for the common good of this church. So we need to stop and think about what our gift is. How am I being a blessing to the church? How am I serving the church? And it's something to think about because this is 
the body life that Peter is pressing upon uh, those who read this letter. Paul does the same thing. The church is like a body. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, we have different parts of the body, just like we have different gifts given within the church. But if part of the body doesn't work, the, the, the body suffers. If the leg doesn't work, if the foot doesn't work, if they're inactive, if they're stagnant, if they're idle, then the body is not going to have the same freedom of motion, being able to, to minister like it should. Every believer has a gift. And that gift is given to you to serve other people within the church. Point number three that he makes is that we are stewards of that gift. He says, serve one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. We don't own the gift. We don't determine the gift. We're a steward of it. Which means God has given it to us And now we are responsible to be trustworthy in the use of it for the good of the church. So He's entrusted this talent to you, this spiritual gift to you. And like the parable, we want to invest it so it produces an increase. So we're all stewards of that gift. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4 verse 2, a steward is to be found trustworthy. So you've been given a gift. The gift is to serve for the common good of the church. And you're a steward of that gift. So use it wisely. He actually goes on and mentions two broad categories of gifts in verse 11. There are speaking gifts and serving gifts. And these are the two general categories of spiritual gifts that Peter is going to Uh, talk about. So in verse 11, he speaks about the speaking gifts. He says, whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Or your translation may have the oracles of God or the words of God. But he's speaking to those who have speaking gifts. Now back in the first century, that would include apostles, Prophets, teachers, preachers, evangelists, people who speak and teach, things like that. Those would be the the speaking kinds of, of gifts. And when he says to them that they should do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God or the oracles of God, He's saying in effect that basically if your gift is to teach or preach or speak in some way, make sure it's in line with Scripture. Make sure it's consistent with the Word of God. He's not really saying that every word that the preacher says or the teacher says is inspired by God. No, he's just saying make your words, make sure that they're in accordance with the utterances of God. That they're in line with the Word of God. That's the point. Now there are some people who preach and think that they're apostles today and prophets today and basically everything they say is like revelation. That's not what Peter is saying. But just make sure that what you teach is in line with Scripture. So basically this is sola scriptura. Scripture alone, that's our authority. 
So if you have one of those gifts, just make sure that it's in line with the Word of God. The word utterances here, again, is a reference to Scripture, oracles of God. Uh, It's used that way in other places in Scripture, so that's clearly what he has in mind. Just make sure it's in line with Scripture. So don't make up stuff. Don't borrow from worldly wisdom and try to put some sanctified, inspired uh, slant upon it. It kind of reminds me of Isaiah back in Isaiah chapter 8 when Isaiah is dealing with all these false prophets and false teachers in Israel. And he rebukes them and he says, why do you consult the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter? Should not a people consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? And then he gives his, his exhortation to them to the law and to the testimony, referring to the Word of God. And if they do not speak according to this Word, it's because they have no dawn. They have no light. Not even the little beginning light on the horizon. They don't even have that if they're not in line with the Word of God. And that's kind of what Peter is emphasizing here. Just make sure that what you say and speak is in line with the Word of God. And we, we do that to the best of our knowledge, but we're not infallible and we're not inspired. Uh, all exposition is not necessarily good exposition, but we do the best that we can to try to stay in line with the Word of God for sure. So be faithful to the Gospel. In other words, is what Peter is saying. Be faithful to the Scriptures. And then the second category gifts in verse 11 is whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. So now he's dealing with serving gifts. And I suppose, since he's only dealing with two broad categories, serving gifts could include basically all the other gifts. It would certainly include the office of a deacon, uh, because a deacon is one who serves. That's what deacon means, those who serve. But it would also include the the gifts of giving and leading and mercy and helps and administration. Those who give to the poor, those who feed the hungry, those who visit the sick, those who visit prisoners. All the other gifts can be kind of summed up by whoever serves. So you have a spiritual gift, at least one in one of those two broad categories. The point that he's trying to emphasize is that if you serve, it is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. Serving, again, can be a very thankless ministry where people don't acknowledge it, they don't even notice it, and no one else is helping with it. And servants sometimes can become discouraged and worn out And so Peter is saying, look, if you're going to serve, do it by God's strength. God will give you the strength. Acknowledge your weakness. Tell Him that you're weary. Pray for His grace and strength. And He'll give it to you. Paul even said that in his ministry that he was serving not striving according to his own power, but according to God's power which mildly works within him. 
So we need to be servants. You know, serving here is really one of the premier ministries of the church. Remember when James and John came to Jesus and they were thinking that Jesus was going to bring in this great military kingdom, political kingdom, and elevate Israel over all the other nations. And they just knew that before long, Jesus was going to sit on the throne of David and He was going to rule over everything. So they had an eye to those two seats on His left and His right. And so the Lord had to rebuke them. And He rebuked them ultimately by saying, whoever wishes to become great in My kingdom shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. I think there's two great Christ-like characteristics that we all ought to aspire to. When you think of what it means to be like Christ, to be conformed to the image of Christ, I think two things stick out in my mind. Number one is to forgive others because that's what Christ did on the cross. We've got to have that forgiving spirit. And number two, to serve others because Christ came to serve. He came to serve, not to be served. And I think if we're trying to be molded into the image of Christ by the grace of the Spirit of God through the Word of God, those two virtues, I think, are very, very important. And Peter is emphasizing that here. That greatness in Christ's kingdom is measured by service, not by being a sovereign. It's by washing the disciples' feet, not by sitting on a throne. It's by bearing a cross, not wearing a crown. The crown will come. The glory will come. But now is the time to pick up the cross, to carry it, and to serve one another in the strength of God. So the motivation for our loving one another, our motivation for hospitality, our motivation for using our spiritual gift to the benefit and the common good of the church is soli deo gloria. Verse 11, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So all we're doing now in loving one another, showing hospitality, using our gift to serve and minister to one another is not for our glory, but for the glory of God that God God might be glorified through Jesus Christ who died on the cross and bore our sins so we could be forgiven, we could be redeemed, we could be changed and become His servants who now live for Him. But it's all through Jesus Christ because there's salvation through no one else other than the Lord Jesus Christ. So that any sinner who believes in Christ can be forgiven of all their sins. He's, he's the pathway for, the, for God to be glorified in your life and in my life. It's all through Christ. But Peter wants God to be glorified through our walk with Jesus Christ to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Now there is a question here in the second part of this 
Is Peter referring to Jesus Christ or to God the Father when he says, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever? And really it fits with both of them. It's certainly affirming the full deity of Jesus Christ. He belongs, to him belongs glory and dominion forever and ever and also to God the Father. But this is glory and dominion forever and ever. That again points us to that future perspective again now. Of whether we're going through persecution, whether we're going through trials, Peter wants us not just to survive, but to thrive and be fruitful. So that our life now in the midst of all of our struggles, in the midst of all the bad things that are going on, as we bear godly fruit in loving one another and hospitality and serving one another, that God will be glorified not just today, but throughout all future eternity forever and ever and ever. So that gives a new focus and meaning for being fruitful today because it will contribute to the glory of God. God is infinitely glorious, but our works, our obedience brings Him glory. And that forever and ever and ever. And then Peter closes with that word, Amen. Which basically just means what I've just told you, let it be so. May God be glorified. May Christ be glorified. Let it be so. It's a amen is a strong affirmation. It's placing a seal of approval on what's just been said. And Peter is saying, as we love and show hospitality and serve one another, God will be glorified and amen. May He be glorified forever and ever. May that be true. May that be true forever. God's glory is a focus. So in wrapping this up, the end of all things is near. And Peter is exhorting us, as well as his readers, to be vigilant to seek God's grace to develop godly character as we're waiting for Christ's return. That character will involve loving. So we're fighting by God's grace that our love doesn't grow cold or our hospitality dries up or our service becomes stagnant. But we're seeking to stimulate that as we're looking forward to the Lord's return. But we're wanting to be fruitful now because ultimately it will be to His glory forever and ever and ever. So may the Lord encourage us and challenge us as we evaluate our lives by these three godly characteristics and may the Lord help us to grow in each and every one of them for His glory and honor. So let's close in a word of prayer. Our Father, we do thank You, Lord, for Peter's words to us this morning in Northwest Bible Church. And we pray, Lord, that the Spirit of God would stir within us a greater degree of love for one another, a desire to show that ministry of serving one another, of opening our homes to one another, of showing the just the love and the desire to impart blessings to those in this church and our other brothers and sisters around the world. Father, we, we need to keep an eye to the future and yet oftentimes we live in the fog of the present because of just all the circumstances that seem to be so discouraging and depressing. The Lord, the only way the fog will lift is if we look ahead to the glory yet to come. 
And let that be our motivation to live faithfully now for the glory of Christ. So Lord, help us. We are weak, but You are strong. So fill us with Your Spirit that we might live for Christ. And we ask it in His name. Amen.